Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 25 to 26. We're going to be looking at the, the mystery of Israel's salvation. So, uh, grab a Bible. We've been working through uh, Romans for over a year now, the, the entire book of Romans. And we've kind of been taking it in sections, right? So Romans 1 through 3 was looking at uh, how all humanity stands condemned before God and his righteousness and his holiness. Romans 4, kind of 4 through 5, um, you know, looks at uh, God's, uh, how he saves sinners and justifies sinners. Romans uh, 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 uh, kind of look at um, Paul's unpacking that, the idea of salvation and what the implications of that salvation are in our lives as believers, right? That we have assurance and, and new life and things like this. Uh, what we've been looking at most recently, the last few months, last couple months, is Romans 9 through 11, which is uh, Paul's dealing with the nation of Israel. And kind of looking at it as a case study uh, to examine um, the character of God, right? Who is God? What is he like? And specifically, how does the nation of Israel fit into uh, God's overarching plan of redemption, right? If, if God is saving his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ, like Paul has been arguing in Romans 1 through 8. If that's true, God is saving his people through Jesus. Jesus came, he died in our place, bore the wrath that we deserve so that we could be saved if we trust in him. If all of those things are true, then what do we do? What are we to make of all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? Where does Israel fit into God's plan? Have they just been replaced? Have they just been cast aside now that Jesus has come and now that God is saving his people through Christ? And so Romans 9 through 11 is Paul trying to explain how Israel uh, fits and, and has always fit and will always fit into God's eternal purposes and God's eternal plan. And so uh, thus far, Paul has explained that those promises that were made to the nation of Israel, promises like I will bless you, I will make you into a great nation, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Paul has argued that God has not abandoned those promises, he has not failed to keep those promises, he has kept them, he is keeping them, and he will keep them, Uh, but he's just trying to help us understand what exactly those promises uh, mean specifically. And so he says, you know, God has has never intended, those promises never meant that God was going to save every ethnically Jewish person of all time, right? He argues that, that ever since the inception of the nation of Israel, it's always been filled, uh, filled, with, and and compri- filled with and comprised of believers and unbelievers, right? There, there, there are uh, Jewish people who don't believe in God, and there are Jewish people who are faithful to God. And so he goes on to explain that uh, God has allowed many within the nation of Israel to reject Christ specifically so that uh, their rejection of Jesus would result in the gospel of Jesus going out to the nations, out to the world, so that Gentiles like us could hear and believe the gospel. And then uh, eventually, at, at some point in the future, God is going to circle back and kind of pick up where he left off and, and see to it that all of Israel, or at least a significant uh, portion of the nation of Israel, turns to Jesus and trusts in him uh, to, be, to be saved. And that's what we're going to see today in this last passage, is this kind of um, 
this, this phenomenon that seemingly is going to happen in the future where a whole bunch of ethnically Jewish people believe in Jesus and they are saved by Jesus. And that's kind of God uh, bringing his plan of redemption to its telos, to its fulfillment, to its final end. So um, we're going to look at that. In, that's probably Romans 20, uh, 11, 25 to 32. And then verses 33 to 36 is kind of this concluding, these concluding remarks, uh, almost a, a doxology, a hymn of praise that Paul kind of uses to bookend the whole section. So uh, let's get to work. Let's read through verses 25 to 36, and then let's spend some time together considering it uh, and considering what it means for us. It says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. We pray that you would use it to teach us and instruct us and change us and form us and sanctify us. For your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so start with verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So, uh, if you remember where Paul left off from the beginning of Romans 11, the first 10 verses talk about uh, God preserving this faithful remnant within the nation of Israel, right? Uh, Elijah is saying, uh, I'm the only believer that's left in the entire nation. God, what's going on? And God says, wait a minute, Elijah, there are 7,000 other faithful believers that you know nothing about that I've been saving and keeping and preserving this whole time. There's, there's a remnant of believers that you're not aware of. And Paul says, just like there was a remnant of believers in that day, so too there is a remnant of believers today, and there always will be. 
So there's always this remnant of believers, but for the rest of the nation of Israel, their hearts have been hardened to the gospel, their eyes have been darkened to the glory of Christ, and they, they cannot see or believe in Jesus. So that's, that's kind of the first ten verses, faithful remnant, but the majority walks away from Christ within the nation of Israel. Verses 11 to 24 explain why that happened. That happened so that through the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus, the gospel would then go out to the nations so that Gentiles, people that aren't Jewish, most of us, uh, can believe in Jesus and be, be saved. He uses the, the illustration of a vine and the branches, right? He's saying that ethnically Jewish people who don't believe the gospel are like branches that have been broken off, and Gentiles who do believe the gospel are like wild, you know, branches from a wild olive shoot that have been taken off of that and grafted in to the olive tree that is God's people of, of Israel. So, so um, faithful remnant of believers... Is majority of Israel rejects Christ. Gentiles have an opportunity to believe in Jesus and be reconciled to Christ. And now, in verse 25, Paul is saying, "Lest you be, like, I, don't think that that is the end of the story. Don't think that the story ends with God allowing Israel to walk away from him, God saving Gentiles through Jesus, and then just that's it. Now, now that's just the end of the story. There's no more, nothing else that has to happen after that. He's saying, if you think that, that, that is not correct. In fact, if you think that uh, you're unaware of the mystery and you are effectively being wise in your own sight. Being wise in your own sight means you believe something that's wrong, but you wrongly believe that what you believe is right. right? You're, 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 not, you're not believing something that's right, but you walk with a swagger and a self-assurance of thinking that what you do believe is right, even though you are, in fact, dead wrong. And it's a bad place to be. Being wrong and being uh, exceedingly confident and self-assured in your own wrongness is a bad place to be. The Bible condemns it. In Proverbs 3, it condemns it in Proverbs 12, it condemns it in Isaiah uh, chapter 5. So, so being wrong, thinking you're right, being wise in your own eyes is not a good place to be. And interestingly enough, um, the Bible also speaks to kind of the situation that Paul's in here, how to interact with and, and um, engage with someone who is that. If you, if you engage with someone that the Bible calls a fool, someone who's wise in their own eyes, someone who thinks that they're right when they are actually wrong, uh, there's, there's a pair of Proverbs that speak to it in, in Proverbs 26 that are interesting. It's worth, worth, worth kind of mentioning and kind of pointing out as we uh, come across this phrase. It says, Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will become just like him. That's Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll become like him. Proverbs 26, verse 5 says, Do answer a fool according to his folly or else he will be wise in his own eyes. Wise in his own sight. So there's two Proverbs literally back to back that say the exact opposite thing. One says, don't respond to a fool in his folly. One says, do respond to a fool in his folly. The one that says, don't answer him says... Uh, don't, don't engage. What is to be gained from getting down in the muck with a, with a fool in his, his folly? The only thing that's going to happen is, is they are going to pull you down to their own level, so don't do it. There's a, there's a modern, uh, you know, modern day proverb that says, if you find yourself arguing with a fool, 
that is proof that there's not just one fool, but two fools, right? Same, same principle. Don't uh, respond to a fool in their folly, lest you become a fool just like him. So that's one way that Proverbs counsels you to engage with a fool, a person who's wise in their own, who thinks they're right when they're, when they're actually uh, wrong. The second proverb says do the opposite, though. It says, no, you, do, you need to, you should respond to a fool in their folly, because if they don't, then they will continue to be wise in their own eyes, right? They will go on thinking that they're right when they're wrong, and so you owe it to them as a friend, family member, fellow human being, to to try and help them believe things that are true and right instead of believing things that are false and wrong. There's two Proverbs, back-to-back, different things. It's not a contradiction, right? People point to something like, ah, see, the Bible's not true. It's not inspired by God because why would it contradict itself like this? And it's not that there's a contradiction. It's just that there's two principles of how to engage with people um, that are both true and both right but need to be applied in different ways and at different times depending on the circumstances, depending on the person, depending on the posture of their heart. And so if we want to know um, which proverb to apply at which moment, that just requires wisdom. It requires being filled with the Holy Spirit. It requires praying. It requires listening to God as he prompts us and how we should be uh, engaging with others. It requires seeking counsel from godly people. There are plenty of times when you're going to find yourself, uh, you know, interacting with a foolish person, when you can and should engage with them and keep them from being right in their own eyes. And there's plenty of times when you might find yourself engaging with a foolish person when the most godly thing to do is just dis- not engage and just walk away. Because engaging is only going to cause you to become foolish along with them. Whatever you do, right? Whether, whether you're going to engage and teach and instruct or whether you're going to not engage because it would be counterproductive, whatever you do, do it with love, do it with humility. That's Proverbs 24, 65. Paul knows those two verses, and he's applying, he's applying the, the latter one here. He's saying, verse 5 is applicable here to my readers of the book of Romans right now. I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. And so in order to prevent you from being that, I am going to try to reveal this mystery to you. I don't want you to be unaware of a mystery. I'm going to explain this mystery to you. And that mystery is this kind of threefold Three things that he says, right? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that all Israel will be saved. Three steps. He says, I want to make that clear, make that known so that you understand it so that you're no longer wise in your own eyes. And so the partial hardening of the nation of Israel is exactly what Paul talked about uh, earlier in the chapter in verses 7 through 10. So chapter 11, verses 7 through 10 uh, kind of explains this partial hardening of the nation of Israel. Basically, uh, what it means is uh, when Jesus came and presented himself to the nation of Israel and said, I am the long-awaited, promised Messiah, come from God to save you and to fulfill all of God's promises to you, the nation of Israel, in large part, rejected Jesus. Seen most notably through their crucifying him, hanging him on, uh, on a cross. And, so, and then for, from that point forward, I mean, I mean, here we are, 2,000 years later. You would think that of all the people on the planet who would be most likely to trust in Jesus as their Savior, it would be Jewish people, because they're the people that have access to all of the Old Testament that explains all of who Jesus is and all of what he's going to do for them. You would think that 
you'd think that a significant portion of ethnically Jewish people would be Christians, but for some reason, there's, it's not. The, the vast majority of Christians in the world are Gentiles, and the vast majority of Jewish people in the world are not Christians. And I think that's because God has uh, allowed a partial hardening to come upon the nation of Israel so that for the time being, for the moments that we're in right now, a significant portion of the nation of Israel is just not able to see the glory of Christ, not able to trust in Jesus and be saved by him. And he's doing that so that there can be opportunity for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. So God, when, Jesus, when, when Jesus is rejected by Israel, God says, all right, uh, Israel is going to be hardened and darkened and not able to see the glory of Christ for a season, for a time. And during that time, Gentile, the gospel is going to go forward and Gentiles from all over the world, Europe, Asia, Africa, America, South America, right? All over the world, Gentiles who have theoretically have no claim at all to this Jewish Messiah. No, no reason to trust in this Jewish Messiah. Gentiles are going to just come to Christ in droves and worship Jesus and trust in Jesus as their Savior and be saved by Jesus. So there's this partial hardening where Israel rejects Jesus, and then there's this time where the fullness of Gentiles are coming in, which we're in right now. And then someday, at some point in the future, we're going to, we're going to hit a point in time where the fullness of Gentiles has come in. So all of the people, all of the Gentiles that God has purposed to save, whenever the last elect Gentile, the last Gentile that God has determined, I want to save you from your sins, as soon as that person trusts in Christ, I think that that means that the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which is going to kind of trigger this next step in the equation, which is, and in that way, all Israel will be saved. Meaning at some point, I think right before the the end of the age, right when Jesus is about to return, the nation of Israel is going to turn from their sin, trust in Jesus, and be saved by by Jesus. Now, uh, there are different different theologians and different systems of theology that interpret this verse different ways. Um, Not everyone believes... Not every Christian believes that the the nation of Israel today still has a role in God's redemptive plan for his people. Not everyone believes that. So so the ones that don't, the ones that think Israel is, like God's dealing with Israel is this past tense thing, they have to get kind of creative with this verse because it certainly appears like like Paul is saying that at some point in the future, God is going to return to his saving purposes within the nation of Israel and save uh, all of or much of the nation of, of Israel. Now, not to get too technical, too in the weeds, theologically speaking, but there's, there's a uh, kind of a theological doctrine. There's, there's a spectrum of theological systems that kind of um, try to explain uh, that try to explain how to understand your Bible and specifically um, whether or like how much continuity versus discontinuity there is as you read your Bible, right? I don't want to, again, get too in the weeds, but uh, some systems of theology say th- that as you read your Bible and as you kind of go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is a lot of continuity. 
A lot of, it's a seamless transition. There's a lot of continuity, very little or no discontinuity. And there's another school of, of theology that says, no, there's a, a great deal of discontinuity and very little continuity. Now, um, the, the, on the far end of the continuity side of the spectrum is a, a, a system of theology called covenantalism. And on the far end of the discontinuity side of the spectrum is a school of theology called dispensationalism. Covenantalism meaning that God has dealt with humanity through a covenant that has largely remained constant and continuous throughout the Bible. Continuity, covenantalism. The dispensationalism, dispensationalism says God has dealt with humanity through a series of dispensations and it changes. There's, there's significant discontinuity as you move from one dispensation to the next and the most significant break, the most significant discontinuity is that between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was dealing primarily with the nation of Israel. The New Testament is dealing primarily with the Gentile church, and they're two separate people, two distinct people, and there's discontinuity between the the two of them. So, covenantalism, big on continuity. Dispensationalism, big on discontinuity. Full disclosure, I'm not entirely in in either camp, um, because I think they have some, some shortcomings as you kind of look through Scripture. Uh, covenantalism, in its truest form, says that there is so much continuity between the two covenants, there's so much continuity between Israel and the church, that they're just one and the same thing, which means that Israel has kind of been squeezed out of God's eternal purposes, right? Now that the church is here, Israel has no more role to play in God's redemptive plan. And it has implications for things like the signs and the sacraments, right? If, uh, if Israel is, not, is no longer in God's redemptive purposes, it's been replaced by the church, then the signs that used to accompany being a member of the nation of Israel have been replaced by the signs in the church. And so we used to circumcise uh, infant children of believers in the nation of Israel. So too we circumcise, infant, or so too we baptize infant believer infant children of believers, we circumcise infant children of believers in the old covenant, we baptize infant children of believers in the new covenant, because there's a continuous spectrum from one to the other. So, so in that covenantal school, that covenantal system, uh, you know, you, that, that's, where, that's where the doctrine of infant baptism comes from. Now, um, I personally think that that verse 26 means that, there is, that, that Israel has not been completely edged out of God's future plans, which means I can't quite embrace everything with covenantalism. But, but I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's a pretty, a pretty compelling system for the most part. That's covenantalism. Pretty compelling. I'm not quite there entirely. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, in its truest form says there's so much discontinuity between the two covenants, so much discontinuity between, so sharp of a distinction between Israel and the church that they're two different groups they're in, entirely, and they have two different plans and purposes. All the promises that you as Gentile Christians read in the Old Testament made to the nation of Israel, they're not for you. They're for Israel. And they're not going to be fulfilled to you. They're going to be fulfilled to the nation of of Israel. And all the promises that God makes to the church in the New Testament, they're not for Israel. They're for the Gentile church. And then those two groups of people are almost on these two different trajectories with two different ends in mind. The church is on a trajectory that finds its fulfillment in heaven and eternity, 
and Israel is on a different trajectory that finds its fulfillment in what's called the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year period that's going to come between when Jesus comes back and when heaven actually starts. So that's dispensational. It's a little, it's, it's out there. Dispensationalists are the guys with the rapture charts and the end times prophecies. Like usually if, it's, if, it's, if you're hearing someone talk a lot about the end times and the rapture, it's, it's coming from a, a dispensational uh, system. So um, I lean toward covenantalism, but I think it goes a little too far. Uh, and I think dispensationalism is just a little, little bit uh, goofy and has a lot of problems with it. But uh, I mentioned those systems because both of those guys get to verse 26, and they, uh, the, the covenantalist gets to verse 26 and says, okay, I get that Paul, I get that this verse looks like Paul is saying that God is going to save Israel. And Paul says that all Israel is going to be saved, but it doesn't mean that, it can't mean that. So it has to mean something else. It has to mean, when, when Paul says the word Israel in verse 26, what he really means is the church. Uh, or something like, something like that, which I think is, just doesn't quite, I'm, I'm not convinced. So that's kind of some of the issues I have with covenantalism. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, gets to this verse and they say, this is exactly, like, this is exactly right, right? Like, God was dealing with Israel, and then he stopped dealing with Israel, and he started dealing with the Gentiles, and one day he's going to stop dealing with the Gentiles, and he's going to start dealing with uh, the nation of Israel and bring them into the, yeah, the millennial kingdom. Again, I'm not entirely convinced by either one. What I, do think is, what I do think is pretty self-evident in verse 26, just given where it's placed in this, this chapter, is that it, it is referring to the nation of Israel and not to some other group. Not, it's not like a code word for the church. It really means, so Paul is really saying that all Israel is going to be saved. After God saves all the Gentiles that he wants to save, then God is going to save all of Israel or at least a significant portion of Israel. And I think, I take that to mean that that's going to happen at the end of the age, right? The, the, gen, the, the church age, is going to continue until God saves all the Gentiles that he wants to save. And then as soon as he does, then God is going to bring about this massive revival within the nation of Israel. And that is going to usher in the end of, the end of human history. And then Jesus is going to return and establish his eternal, his eternal kingdom. So, one God, so yeah, I mean, unlike dispensationalism, I would affirm that there's one God, one people, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, God saves them together in the same way to be with him uh, forever. But I do think that uh, there is a future for the nation of Israel, and I think, that that's, I think that's what verse 26 is uh, referring to. And then he says, As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 to 21. What's going on in Isaiah 59 is that uh, Isaiah is painting this picture of humanity and human sin and human depravity getting worse and worse and worse. And God is becoming increasingly angered by it until eventually God has to step in and do something about it. And God has to come in power to punish evil, to save his people. 
And when he does, everyone on the whole earth is going to fear the name of the Lord and everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the Lord will be saved and will be given the spirit of the Lord and they will be with him forever. The deliverer will come from Zion, banish ungodliness, and he will take away the sins of his, his people. That's Isaiah 59. And Paul is saying, he's pointing to that chapter and saying, that's what I'm saying is going to happen. Right? What Isaiah 59 is describing is exactly what I'm saying is going to happen. Israel rejects Jesus. Gospel goes to the nations. Gentiles trust in Jesus. And then one day, like Isaiah 59 says, God is going to insert himself back into human history. He's going to come back. He's going to punish evil. He's going to save his people. And Israel is going to turn from their sin and trust in him. And he is going to save them with and alongside the, the Gentile church that he has been building for centuries. So it's this big, long arc that starts with God making promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then goes way wide so as to save the Gentiles and then circles back to, to save Israel and fulfill the promises that God made to, to Abraham. So that's what Paul, I think, is, is, is saying is going to happen. Right? The, the Israel has temporarily turned away from Jesus. Gentiles are receiving the gospel. But one day, Israel is going to come back and God's going to fulfill his promises to him. And in verse 28 and following, he kind of explains some of the theological implications of this, uh, of this trajectory. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That means, right now, as it stands right now, Paul writing this letter to the church in Rome, even us, you know, uh, right now in, in this kind of church age that we live in, with regards to the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sake. So uh, the nation of Israel has rejected God, rejected Jesus, right? They're persecuting the church at this time, right? Uh, the, some, of the most, some of the most violent persecution of Christians at this time was coming from the Jewish religious leaders, and so Paul's saying, they, the Jewish people, are enemies of the gospel, but they're enemies for your sake. Meaning that if you're a Gentile, the fact that the nation of Israel are enemies of the gospel actually works to your benefit. Because, I mean, theoretically, if Jesus had come and presented himself to the nation of Israel, and they had said, great, we, we, we embrace you, we accept you as our Messiah, theoretically then maybe the gospel would have never gone to the Gentiles and Gentiles would have never had an opportunity to believe the gospel. So Paul is saying the fact that they rejected the Messiah works to your benefit. It's for your sake because that means that you can then hear the gospel, trust in Jesus, and be saved from your sin. So right now, as it stands right now, the nation of Israel are enemies of the gospel and it works to your benefit as Gentiles. But as regards election... Yeah, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Meaning, right now, they're enemies of the gospel, and it's working to your benefit. It's for your sake. But, but if you zoom out and look at the grand scheme of things, if you look at God's eternal purposes, the nation of Israel, God has every intention of fulfilling the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. In the long run, they're not enemies. They're beloved of God. They're enemies right now, but in the long run, they're going to be beloved. And the reason why is for the sake of their forefathers, right? God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God is not going to go back on those promises. He's not going to renege on those promises. 
the same thing that Paul said back in uh, verse 16, when he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches, right? right? The promises that God makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's not going to drop them. He's not going to fail to keep them. Verse 29, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God keeps his promises. God never, ever makes a promise and then fails to keep it or refuses to keep it. That doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's, a, it's just a physical impossibility. God is faithful and God keeps his promises. Everything he says, he does, he can't not do it. And his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So again, that doesn't mean every single Jewish person is always going to be saved, but I do think it means that at some point the nation of Israel is going to, there's going to be a significant revival within the nation of Israel. And then in verses 30 and 31, there's this interesting kind of literary parallel sentence that Paul is using to kind of uh, explain what he's saying. He says, Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So you've got to just kind of track with me here. You, Gentiles, were disobedient. You, Gentiles, have received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience. They, Israel, were disobedient. They, Israel, will receive mercy by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles. So there's this kind of, it's got a cadence. It almost sounds like a song, right? Like disobedience, mercy, those words are repeated over and over. You, you, them, 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 you. There's this, he's, he's kind of almost poetically arranging this sentence to say, both Jews and Gentiles have had this period of disobedience so that they can then enjoy this period of God's mercy. Gentiles were dis- the, the, the period of Gentile disobedience is fairly self-evident, right? For ever, before, uh, before Jesus came and before the gospel, you know, for, for centuries, for thousands of years, uh, you have Jewish people worshiping the one true God and everyone else, all the Gentiles, are worshiping blocks of wood, rocks, the sun, right? Uh, you name it, right? Their, their ancestors, the stars. So that's the time of Gentile disobedience is idolatry and all kinds of sin. But then, because of Israel's disobedience, they're rejecting Jesus. Now, Gentiles have the opportunity to receive mercy, to hear the gospel and be saved by the gospel. So Gentile disobedience is idolatry, and Gentile mercy is believing in Christ as the result of the gospel coming to them. But verse 31 is, is the story of Israel, right? Israel has also been disobedient, referring to their rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And by the same mercy shown to the Gentiles, meaning God's grace to save sinners who trust in Jesus, Israel is eventually going to receive that same mercy, which I think means at some point in the future the nation of Israel is going to turn to Jesus. And they're going to trust in him, and they're going to be saved from their sins, just like we see happening among the Gentiles right now. 
Verse 32, so, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Again, everyone, Jew and Gentile, has this period of disobedience on their resume. And every person, Jew and Gentile, has the opportunity to receive God's mercy by trusting in Jesus. God has consigned both to have a period of disobedience and both to have a period, right? And I, so I think God did this. God, God arranged his plan of salvation in this way, right? To choose Abraham and the nation, but then to have that nation reject him so that it goes to the Gentiles and then eventually circle back and save the nation of Israel so that everyone, Jew and Gentile, who is saved by God's grace so that no one will boast in themselves, right? So that people will boast in the glory of God, right? Israel, if you remember back to Romans 2, one big thing that Paul was saying uh, was, was kind of rebuking the nation of Israel and saying, don't do this, is looking at the other nations and being, and judging them and being judged, right? I'm better than you. We're more spiritual than you. We have the law and you don't. We obey God and you don't. We're good and you're not. And Paul is saying, don't do that. And then what Paul says to the Gentiles, uh, actually in Romans 11, verses 18 to 19, you can look just up on the same page, um, he is instructing Gentiles not to look at Israel and say, we're better than you. You rejected Jesus and we didn't. We've been, you made this big mistake and we succeeded where you failed. And so, so Paul is saying every single person, Jew and Gentile, no one can look at anyone else and boast that I'm better than you. I'm more spiritual than you. I'm more righteous than you. I am more deserving of God's grace and eternal life than you are. Because every single person has a big, just big red X of disobedience on their resume. Every single person has been consigned to a period of disobedience, and every single person who's saved is only saved not by their righteousness, not by their goodness, but by God's mercy. So if you're a, a Jewish person, you can't brag that you're better than a Gentile, and if you're a Gentile, you can't brag that you're better than a Jewish person. We've all been consigned to disobedience, and we all, our only hope for all of us is the mercy of God, the mercy of Christ. And that kind of wraps up Paul's three-chapter treatise, his three-chapter interlude on the nation of Israel and how the gospel was delivered to them, how it went to the Gentiles, and how eventually they're going to be saved by trusting in, in Jesus. And then the last four verses, uh, Paul kind of... He's done talking about doctrine now. In the last four verses, he kind of erupts into this uh, emotional, heartfelt song, this doxology talking about how great God is. It's been said that all theology results in doxology, right? That, that, that theology, when practiced rightly, will inevitably result in doxology. So theology is the study of God, the doctrine of God, doxology is the worship of God, right? This heartfelt worship of God. And so, so theology is not this academic discipline confined to an ivory tower where you read books about God and you acknowledge facts about God dispassionately. 
Theology, when practiced rightly, affects your life and it affects your heart and it animates your heart to worship God. And that's what we see with Paul right here. For 11 chapters, he's been giving us theology, doctrine about God, facts about God, who God is, how God has saved sinners. And that causes him to erupt into doxology. That causes him to worship God and exclaim how great and glorious God is. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God is infinitely knowledgeable, right? There's, there's nothing that God doesn't know. He's omniscient. He knows everything that there is to know, everything that, there is, that it's possible to know. God knows every event that has ever happened. When one event happens, he not only sees it and knows it, but he knows the eternal chain of events that's going to flow from it. He knows all of the billions of events that are unleashed by every other event, and he knows all of this without even the slightest. It doesn't tax his brain at all, right? You have like an old phone, and it can't even do, you know, you're, i got to go buy a new phone because my phone is going... God, God's brain, knowing everything that there is to know in the world, takes like 1%, a millionth of 1% of God's power and capacity. That's how, that's how smart, that's how intelligent, how omniscient God is. And God is infinitely wise. If, if God's knowledge means that he knows everything that there is to know, then God's wisdom means that he knows how to leverage that knowledge for uh, purposes that are good and right and true and pure and holy. So God knows everything about every situation, and he knows how to act in every situation in such a way that the perfect ideal result and outcome comes uh, about. He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely knowledgeable. His judgments are unsearchable, and his ways are inscrutable. So God's judgments are unsearchable, meaning that his capacity for judgment and the, the things that he knows, the things that the decisions that he makes are so, the, the, they're so good and right and they're so born out of so much knowledge and wisdom that we can't even scratch the surface. We can't even understand, right? The decisions that God makes are so good, they are beyond our comprehension. His ways are inscrutable. Right? right? So, so how he chooses to go about doing things are beyond the limits that our brains can comprehend. And so the net result is that when we as finite beings will often look at God and say, why is God doing that? That doesn't make sense. I don't like that. I wouldn't have done it that way. Why doesn't God do this other thing? That's the way that I would have done it. And when that happens, Paul is saying, when that happens, it's not that God has done something bad. It's not that God has done something poorly and you could have done it better. It's that God did something good that you cannot understand. Because God's ability, God's mind is beyond our ability to understand. We're not as knowledgeable as God is. We're not as wise as God is because God is infinitely wise and infinitely knowledgeable. And because of his infiniteness and because of our finiteness, God's glorious judgments will inevitably be unsearchable to us and his righteous ways will inevitably be inscrutable to us. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? 
It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Right? No one knows the, the mind of the Lord. No one knows what he's, no one sees all the angles that God sees. No one can anticipate all the things that God can anticipate. No one can stand in judgment over God and over the things that God says and does. None of us is as knowledgeable as God is. None of us is as wise as God is. None of us can give counsel to the Lord. God has never come to any of us and asked us for advice. The nature of the universe is that God knows everything and God has revealed a tiny portion of what he knows to us so that we can know that with him. But everything else that has not been revealed to us, he knows. So, so the natural order is, is that we listen to God, we learn from God, we change and adapt based on what God says. God does not need to change or adapt based on what we think and what we feel. It's foolish and absurd for a creature to presume to give counsel to the God that created him or her. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? God has everything. God owns everything. All of creation belongs to God. He owns the cattle and a thousand hills. And God has graciously allowed for us to have an experience and enjoy things. But ultimately, it's all his. Right? God, Acts 17 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything that they have. Your money belongs to God. Your possessions belong to God. Your home belongs to God. Your family belongs to God. Your very life belongs to God. God owns everything, and so no one can give anything to God at least in the sense that we're giving him something that he does not already own, or that we are giving him something that would then obligate him to us in any way. No one can give something to God that would somehow put God in our debt. We can give things back to God. We can give the things that God has given to us back to him as an act of worship. We can't give something to God to kind of, force his hand or, or put him in our debt. And he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Meaning God is the ultimate origin, the ultimate cause, the ultimate decisive factor for everything in existence. Apart from God, nothing exists. Apart from God, nothing can continue to exist. God creates, he sustains, he, he preserves, he takes care, he looks after everything in the universe. Everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you know, everything that you experience is all because of God. The atheist that is, you know, spends his days speaking out against God, proclaiming that God doesn't exist, saying how much he hates God and resents the idea of, of God. The only reason he can do that is because God allows him to. God gives him the capacity to think and feel and speak and, and, and say that. Nothing in the universe happens apart from God's allowing it to happen. Everything comes from God. Everything flows through God. He says, to God be the glory to forever meaning the entire reason this world was created, the end that this world is hurling toward, 
the thing that will be happening for all of eternity forever and ever is God receiving glory. God being maximally glorified for who he is, right? The, the, the reality is that God is infinitely good and glorious and holy and righteous and loving. And the end that we are journeying toward is God's people seeing and experiencing God as being holy and righteous and, and good and glorious and loving. And then God's people responding when in worship, right? Worshiping God and declaring that he is good and holy and righteous and loving and glorious. Just like Paul does here in verses 33 to 36, right? This is a picture of what's going to be happening in eternity, right? Romans 1 through 11 is, is Paul saying who God is. He's good. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He gathers his people. He forgives their sin. He changes them. He sanctifies them. He's called a nation through Abraham, right? He has allowed the gospel to go forward from that nation out to the entire world to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And eventually he's going to circle back and save that, that nation, right? For 11 chapters, Paul has painted this picture of an incredible God with an incredible plan, and then in verses 33 to 36, Paul, after seeing the reality of who God is, he overflows in worship and he praises God and he delights in God. The, the, the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, right? His, his, his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can give him a gift? God is great. God is glorious. God is knowledgeable. He's wise. He's beyond our comprehension. He's sovereign. He owns everything. He is the king. He is the best. In other words, from him and through him and to him are all things. And to God be the glory forever and ever. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, your, for the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. We thank you that you are the sovereign king who owns all things, that you are the gracious redeemer who saves us and reconciles us to yourself. And we come to you this morning trusting in you and holding fast to you and thanking you for your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.